You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ephesians 4, 25 through 28. Therefore, having putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, and we do confess now that we need you. We need you every hour, and so we pray that you would be with us this hour, that you would make us more and more through the preaching of your word, through the coming to the table, through praying and singing, and all of these things that we are doing together here, that you would make us more and more into the image of your Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, Yeah. Anybody going to do anything fun tomorrow? We have no plan. All right. I'll come and talk to you after, and you can tell me what you're going to do, because we have no plans. But uh, it's good to see you all here. We are walking slowly and surely through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you were here with us last week, uh, Paul introduced this idea of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Just like when we take off or put off old and tattered, dirty clothes, and then put on a new and crisp uh, set of new clothes, Paul urges these new Christians, whether they be Jew or Gentile, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as those who are living in an age of darkness and ignorance uh, to the shining brightness of Christ. And so now, throughout much of the rest of this book, that's just a fleshing out of what that means, of what it means to put on the old self and put off the old self. How or what are we to practically put off and put on? Should becoming a Christian make any practical difference in our thoughts, in our lives, in our actions? If so, where, how, what areas of our lives? So one commentator says of the text for at least the next two sermons, uh, these next two weeks, that the movement of thought Move from last week when we were talking about the lofty heights of learning Christ. Paul said, this is not how you learned Christ. Now it gets to the nitty-gritty of Christian behavior, telling the truth, controlling our anger, honesty at work, kindness of speech, forgiveness, love, and sexual control. But working out what to do with these kinds of texts can sometimes be tricky. We might think, ah, right, that's what I thought. Christianity is just a bunch, uh, a set of following rules. Or if you're exploring Christianity and you've even heard this text just read, you might think, ah, yes, I get it, I get it. This is just a bunch of, of Puritans like I read about in like ninth grade English class or something that Christians are just those people who someone somewhere might be having just a bit of fun and so we need to stamp that out. I'm not really interested in that. I'm not really interested in the nitty-gritty. Well, Christianity is far, far more than just a mindless following of rules. But the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New, is full of commands and actually does very much care about the nitty-gritty of human life. So Ray Ortland has been helpful for me throughout the years in asking three questions. Three questions that we should ask when we encounter texts 
or commands like the ones that we are going to get to tonight. Here are the three questions. When you encounter commands, what kind of God would give this kind of command? What kind of people would need such a command? And then, how does Jesus help us fulfill all this? So, as we're thinking through this, all of these just short verses that you heard Jamie just read, what kind of God would give this kind of command? A good, a wise, a just God, or an evil, an arbitrary, or an unjust God? What kind of people would need such a command? Awesome people who just need a little bit of a nudge in the right direction? or fundamentally selfish people, fundamentally self-serving people who need not just a nudge, but an utter redirection, an intervention, spiritually dead people who need life altogether. And then third, how does Jesus help us to fulfill this? To try harder and to, to do better or by empowerment, empowerment through grace and love. So tonight, we're just going to get through three areas of life in which Paul says that we are to be a people of a new kingdom people of a new realm, people of a new age, people of a new ethic, that Christians are to be people of truth and not falsehood, that Christians are to be people of peace and not anger and generosity, not stealing, that we must put off the old clothes of falsehood and put on the new clothes of truth, to put off anger and put on peace, to put off stealing and put on generosity. So this is exactly how we're going to just walk through these three verses, these three commands, these new covenant expectations for life in the kingdom, life under the good King Jesus. Just three things, truth, not falsehood, peace, not anger, and generosity, not stealing. So we're gonna slow way down here. You may have been a little taken aback when you saw a second screen come up, and that was the end. That was all that Jamie read. So we're gonna make sure that we just don't rush through these new covenant commands, similarly to how we did about three years ago by spending one Sunday per commandment when we were going through the 10 commandments in the book of Exodus. And in fact, you might hear some similar things here. These three commands that we have here are very similar to three commands in the Ten Commandments. But here we go. Paul first wants the Ephesians to no longer walk in the way of the Gentiles, but to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by truth, not falsehood. So he says right at the top in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So he assumes that the new creation Christian is putting off, is taking off, is putting away falsehood, untruth, and deceit, and instead putting on, wearing truth, speaking the truth. In 2019, when we thought through the ninth commandment of you shall not bear false witness, we really drilled down on truth-telling, on being people of truth, that it almost seems impossible for us today, today to remember a time when the word or the phrase fake news would have meant nothing to you. Like, can you imagine such a time, just like six or seven years ago, when that phrase would have meant nothing to you? but that because outrage has been turned up to 11 on every major or even minor story, now it's almost impossible for us to decipher what is true or untrue out there. And if we encounter something that we don't like, we can just wave it away as a lie or as uh, deceit. 
that all sides of politics and culture, both poles of politics and culture, are doing this today, are dealing with truth in this way today. Truth and the pursuit of truth is like sand. It is like disintegrating in our hands, slipping through our fingers. But while there is something new going on culturally here today, falsehood and untruth is certainly not new. It is as old as page one of the Bible, both in straight-out deceit and falsehood, but also even in more subtle ways, more insidious ways, even of like gossip and flattery. I've shared with many, of, or many times before that gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face, and flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. And both of those things are untruth. They are falsehood, and they are deadly. There's an old Jewish saying that gossip and slander kills three. The one about whom it is spoken, the one who speaks it, and the one who listens. Hearing gossip not only feeds and fuels our desire for more of it, but it then implicates us as active participants in falsehood. So since nearly all cable news and even much of social media these days is mostly or merely political gossip and slander, uh, one wonders how much a Christian should engage. If it is something that we should actively be putting off, especially if we feel that the news is making us more and more not a people of joy and of contentment, but a people of outrage. Or... We might find ourselves over coffee or lunch and someone starts talking about someone in a way that uh, they would never say or speak about that person if they were sitting there at the table. We might, as people of a new realm, put off the way of falsehood and put on the way of truth-telling and maybe say, hey, I think uh, we might be about to cross the threshold of gossip. And I'd really like to honor that person that we're talking about uh, and not talk about them in this way behind their back. Even in gossiping with ourselves. Have you ever gossiped with yourself internally? The inner monologues about what or why someone did something. Coming up with elaborate theories of ill motives instead of assuming the best in someone, instead of talking to that person instead. Moving towards that person in patience and kindness and in love even those people that we might even consider our enemies. But of course, none of that jives with uh, this culture that we're living in, this immediate social media culture of hot takes and takedowns, that all these bad arguments that must be exposed and destroyed. These people who are making bad arguments and doing evil things must be held accountable without nuance, certainly with not, without grace. They must be held accountable for wrong actions, even wrong beliefs, and all of us are guilty. It's not just others. All of us are guilty in this kind of culture of gossip, of slander. And of course, the flip side of gossip is flattery, meaning we don't actually believe what we're saying to someone, but I will exaggerate or embellish so that you, this person that I'm talking to, uh, might think more highly of me, might give me some sort of approval or standing other, apart from what I would be saying. That is not true. And Paul says that the new covenant people of Christ, those who have learned Christ and who have put on the new self of him, of unity and of love, must put off falsehood. But why? Why is falsehood such a big deal? What makes lying or even just a little stretching of the truth, 
such a big deal? I think that at the root of all lying, or even of unhelpful or unloving speech, of which we'll have much to consider in the next few weeks, is two dark human concerns, that of pride or fear. Pride is behind gossip. Like, look what I know. Isn't it fun to sit in a place of superior judgment of others and to to invite others into that judgment? But fear can just as equally motivate our speech. We exaggerate on a resume or in just telling a story of something that happened over the weekend because we're afraid that the truth is actually not good enough. It's too boring. So we're afraid that someone might reject even just a meaningless story of the weekend. We want to be brought in into their acceptance when confronted with some bit of failure in our life. We deflect and we make all kinds of excuses shifting blame unfairly on others when it was our own failure. Instead of owning the failure, we're afraid of the consequences for our own reputations even. But if we put our speech under the microscope, like you just put some words on the slide and put it under the microscope, if that's even possible, you turn the settings way up We may even find that what looks like pride is actually just fear. I lie because I'm afraid of the consequences of what the light of the truth might expose. I gossip about my friends and my family and my co-workers, about celebrities and politicians, because I'm actually afraid of turning the mirror on myself. If I can just keep talking about others, then I never have to put the same sort of reflection upon myself. I want to distract myself from the reality that I don't even measure up to the same standards that I place on others. And so it's real easy for me to just keep gossip and slandering about others. And of course, pride and fear aren't just the root of untrue speech, but perhaps are the roots of all sin. This is what Satan, whom Jesus calls the father of lies, came whispering. He came whispering to Adam and Eve, and he said, has God really told the truth? Has he really said? Has he maybe told you lies that you will surely die? Have he, has he told you lies that he doesn't want you to be happy? Has he told you lies that actually there's a better way to become like him? The sad truth of all of these lies, these crafty questions, these twistings of the truth is that all of them were twistings of the truth, that Adam and Eve were actually already very much like God. They were created in his image. They were co-rulers alongside him. But then they began to think that their understanding of truth, their grasp of reality was more trustworthy than God's word for them. And perhaps they even began to fear that God was holding out on them, that he was withholding some blessing, some good, that he didn't love them as he said he did, that God was lying, and so they took the fruit and they ate. And now daily following in their footsteps, our sin, our actions, our thoughts, our fears, all reveal that we actually think that God is a liar, that he is withholding, and that we actually know the way to truth, happiness, and acceptance. And so the first thing that we, we need to be reminded of when we are encountering a verse or a command like this from Paul to put away falsehood is to be reminded that Titus 1-2, God never lies. Never. He always tells the truth. That Romans 3, 4, that everyone else is a liar, 
but God is true. That Numbers 23, 19, God is not like a man that he should lie. He tells the truth. He is the source of light so that there is no shadow of turning with him. If there is fault and pride and fear, it is not because of God. It is because of us. Which is then the second thing that we need to recognize, that while God never lies, we do. That first John 1 John says says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves, and the truth is not within us. The mirror of the law leaves us as unacceptable, sinful liars before God. James even describes our speech and our tongues as corrupted by the fires of hell. Wow! That we willingly use our tongues, we willingly use our speech as conductors to transfer this fire and then burn the world down. But this is not how you have learned Christ. Instead, Paul says in Ephesians 4, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Here Paul is directly quoting from Zechariah 8. There, Zechariah, is, he's this prophet, and he sees this vision of Zion, the, the place where God dwells with his people in a city of truth. And there is peace, there is love, and there is unity. And so, because of the peace and the truth and the unity of living together and living with God, Zechariah says, tell the truth, speak the truth to each other, to your neighbor. They are to be a people who speak truth with their neighbors. They are a people of truth because they belong to a king of truth. He has made them a society of truth. And maybe that's a good way to think of the church. We are a new society of truth. He has made us a people of the truth. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because Paul further explains that we are members of one another. Like when you get a sinus infection, uh, your sinuses speak the truth to the rest of the body loudly so that you cannot ignore your sinuses. But it is only a body that is not functioning in a way that it should when it has sinuses that are not sick that then the sinuses lie. The sinuses say, say, I actually am sick. Give attention to me when the sinuses are not sick. A well-ordered, functioning body of unity and truth speaks the truth in love to one another, always, united together. So our words really matter, as we thought about in the Proverbs last year, that death and life are in the power of the tongue, both for your good and your well-being and for others. Your words are either flying daggers, which can cut and can kill, or your words are like caramel apples, sweet Serious business are words. And we are to put off falsehood, but to put on truth. But secondly now, not just truth and not falsehood, but secondly, peace, not anger. Paul says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is really tricky. Be angry and do not sin. Some of us might hear that and be like, all right, I can do that. Just needed the go-ahead, Mr. Paul. But again, Paul here is directly quoting from the Old Testament. 
here in this verse from Psalm 4 in this case. If, you've, if, you're not, if you have a Bible open and you want to like put your finger in Ephesians 4 and flip over to about the middle of your Bible to Psalm 4, we can just read the first five verses of Psalm 4 for context here. David is writing this psalm of lament, of sadness, of crying out to God. And he says this in Psalm 1, or Psalm 4, verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So in Psalm 4, as David is looking around and seeing both the nations who hate God and his countrymen attacking him, as he sees men who pursue falsehood and lies, but then as he reflects upon and considers that God has set apart a people for himself, he tells himself and he tells those listening like, O men, be angry and do not sin. Now, we could interpret this, both in Psalm 4 and Ephesians 4, as perhaps David and Paul are saying, be angry about the current circumstances, just like David was, like things are not as they are. Be angry, lament that the world is not the way that it should be. Be angry like Jesus in the temple, that God's people are not living as they ought, and that the leaders are not leading in the right worship of God. Be angry about all of those wrong things going on in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the world around us. Be angry in these things in lamentation, but just like Jesus in the temple, be angry and do something about those things, but just be careful not to sin while you do so. But what, do Dave, what does David say in Psalm 4, and what does Paul say in Ephesians 4 right after they give us that phrase of be angry and do not sin? David says, be angry and do not sin, and then ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Paul says, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So it sure seems like both of these are more like a conditional statement rather than an imperative command, meaning rather than telling people to make sure to go get angry about things, but when you do, don't sin, rather both David and Paul are likely saying if or when you get angry, do not sin. Paul goes on to clarify that there should be a limit to your anger. It should not just go out. There is a literal limit on someone's anger that Paul gives us. And what is it? The sunset. This verse often gets used to like urge reconciliation between people who are angry with one another, right? Before the sun goes down, make sure you reconcile and get things right. Uh, for all of you uh, like millennials out there who are in youth group in the 90s, there was a DC Talk song about this just between you and me, I got something to say. Want to get it straight, millennials? Before the sun goes down, right? And all of that is good and right. Like, that's actually a good and wise practice for roommates, for spouses, to reconcile. Don't let it go. Reconcile quickly. 
All that's good and right. Unity among the church church is one of, if not the major themes of this entire letter. We should pursue oneness, unity, reconciliation. But you might notice that Paul isn't necessarily talking about anger between people here. But that anger, in general, gives a foothold to the devil, a beachhead, a place for the evil one to make inroads in our lives. Paul doesn't say that the evil one causes anger, but that anger gives him room for growth. Paul is concerned about external action, but just like David urges right contemplation, what does he say? When you get angry, if you get angry, just go to your room, close the door, lie in your bed, and think rightly about God, right worship and trust in God in the face of anger. Just like David, Paul is actually far more concerned with the heart. He's not saying, hey, everybody, get angry about the things that you should get angry about. Show some outrage and do something about it, just like Jesus in the temple. First of all, we're not Jesus, and I actually don't trust my heart to get angry about things in outrage and then not sin. So I'm not Jesus, so that's the first thing. But I think Paul's way more concerned about what anger is doing here. Unsurprisingly, Paul is in complete agreement with what Jesus has to say about anger. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's serious business. Jesus has for us. So to give you just one short glimpse of what I think Jesus is doing here, it's like if the Old Testament law of you shall not murder was like the the high striker game at the state fair. You know, the one where you have the sledgehammer and you try to hit the thing and ding the bell at the top, right? Well, if it's on a zero to a hundred and the hundred is dinging the bell, the law or you shall not murder is like the 70 point on this track. You shall not murder. The law is really, really good. It's on the road. It's on the right trajectory for what God intends for humanity, but it is not the full and final goal. Not murdering is a 70. It is a good thing, and that command ought to be listened to. It ought to be heard. It ought to be obeyed, but God is after so much more. He's after your heart. One doesn't merely choose to not murder with their hands, but he is after someone who actually chooses to not murder with their hearts. Because Jesus is a good doctor here. He's a really good doctor. He makes a clear and incisive diagnosis behind the symptoms. Murderers show very clear symptoms of the disease. It's very easy to spot. It is very easy to spot the deep, destructive, mortal disease in a murderer. But we are all carriers. We are all carriers of the disease, like many or most carriers of hepatitis C showing no symptoms, perhaps even asymptomatic carriers of COVID. The murderer in your heart makes this disease look, make it, makes, it's a little difficult to spot. It's almost, it's expressing itself asymptomatically. You can't spot it. But if you actually know what you're looking for, 
If you are a really good doctor and can incisively see through and diagnose beyond the immediately external, you can spot it, and Jesus spots it. When your roommate leaves the dishes out and your blood pressure starts to go crazy and your face gets hot, or if, on the other hand, your roommate keeps asking you to, like, have a clean kitchen. What's this guy's deal? Why does everything always have to be clean? And your blood pressure starts to go up and your face begins to get hot. Rather, in both scenarios, talking with them in patience and in love, the anger begins to show itself. The symptoms are showing themselves. The disease which says, the world must be considerate of all of my wants and my needs and desires. When your kids are yelling at each other, rather than using this as an opportunity for grace and for teaching, you just yell louder than them and tell them to shut up. That's enough. The disease which says that everyone must do as I say, and actually what I most want is quiet and comfort, and you are ruining it. When your spouse just isn't listening or even says or does something hurtful, you respond with the same. If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. If you lose your cool, I'll lose mine. If you scream, I'll scream. It's the disease that gets angry at other image bearers on the highway. It's the disease that gets angry at politicians or people on social media, some whom we know, some whom we don't know. It's the disease that hates others who look or act or speak differently than you, perhaps even unknowingly or subconsciously. Perhaps all of this isn't observable to news crews or to social media, but might still be festering in your heart. All of these are lower expressions of the same wicked and sick heart of murderers. Hearts that say and think, you are not worthy of my love in this moment because I have determined that you are not. I, the creature, know better than God whether or not I should honor you as his image bearer. And I know that I should not, but I'm going to anyway. Paul says, put all that off. Don't let the sun go down There is a limit to your anger. You must just go home, close the door, turn off your phone. If that's even making you more angry, just be quiet for a minute. Remember that God exists and that you are not him, that vengeance is of the Lord and it is not to be taken by you. Remember your very small place in the cosmos and make right worship to the Lord, as David says. Trust him. Put all that off. Put on Christ. Patience, peace, not anger. Put off the old man of anger. Put on the new man of love and self-control. Do not walk as the Gentiles, but walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In truth, not falsehood. In peace, not anger. But then lastly, in generosity, not stealing. So Paul says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, I think we live in like a a Robin Hood culture and society. Most people agree that it would be not a huge deal to steal like a hundred bucks from a corporation or a business. They won't ever know that it was gone. And especially if I can give it to someone who might need it more, then that's okay, probably, right? We fudge the truth on our taxes, 
We illegally stream pirated movies or music. We share usernames and passwords for Netflix and other streaming services. We steal answers on tests that we haven't prepared for. We plagiarize papers and presentations. We take out loans that we don't intend to pay back and on and on and on and on. And so Martin Luther is right. Luther wrote this in the 1500s. He said, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. We are in a world, we are in a room of great thieves. Over and over throughout Israel's history, the prophets would come and loudly denounce a culture of taking and of hoarding. Even more, just as I was saying just a minute ago that pride or fear or even lying is behind all sin, we might say that there is certainly even a sense in which stealing is behind all sin. It is taking of God's glory for ourselves. And so out of love for creation and out of love for humanity, out of love for the church and out of love for the glory of God, Paul is certainly echoing the Ten Commandments here when he says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Now, Luther and Calvin and lots of other reformers, they had lots to say about a developing economic system of like capitalism around them that might exploit or steal from the poor. And maybe there are some of us here that things like that ought to prick our consciences as well. Perhaps we are engaged in a occupation, a job, and even parts of the economy in which we actually are exploiting and stealing from those who don't know that this is happening or we are just taking from the vulnerable. But here, Paul is commending hard work. There is a reason why out of the Protestant Reformation, there's something that came to be known as the Protestant work ethic. Of hard work, get this, even for making money's sake. Working hard, perhaps with other goals along the way, but working hard to make money. Earning money even huge profits, is not inherently sinful, is not inherently bad. But one overreaction against Western exploitation, against Western greed, is to say that all capitalism is bad. And of course, many find themselves in financial difficulty because of exploitation, because of prohibitive life circumstances. But others might say, look, I'm not against capitalism or, you know, making huge profits for everybody, but it's just not for me. Like, I'm not about the American dream. I really don't care about the job I have. I really don't care about the big fancy house or the nice car. I'll just be content with Jesus. It's fine. And there is a sense in which, yes, that's fine and good. It is more than possible for you to get a decently paying hourly job. This is honest and good work. The reformers had lots to say about doing good work. Luther talked about being the best street sweeper in all of the land to the glory of God. Yes and amen. And it is possible for you to live with your parents, 
to live with other roommates. It is good and right to be a good steward of the money that we have and make good financial decisions. It is possible to do that, working hourly jobs, living with others or with your parents, for your family for the rest of your life, and to have a wonderful, growing knowledge of God and relationship with Christ for the rest of your life. But being barely able to squeak by on your own bills puts you in a position where you will not be able to help others who then also have legitimate needs. Not because of like internal motivations, like they don't care about the American dream or something, but because of external barriers. Things that have happened to them that they did not plan for or prepare for. Even if you legitimately don't care about the American dream, for the sake of your neighbor, who also doesn't necessarily care to have a huge house or fancy car, but would just like to be able to pay rent or have a car at all for the future sake of your parents, who now you are living with, but may eventually need care, will eventually need care that requires money for the sake of the good of others, for all of these things, perhaps it is good for us to Think about the Protestant work ethic. To go to school and to study as hard as you can, to get the best job, to get in the best schools for the future best job, the best God-honoring job that you can. And if you are able, and if it is possible, keep moving. Keep moving for future certifications, for future degrees. Keep moving up in your place of work. Why? Why? Not for your own having lots of degrees and certificates on the wall in your office. Not just for greater influence in the direction of the company, though that'd even be great. But also because, as Randy Alcorn says, that God raises my level of income not to increase my standard of living, but my standard of giving. That the more you have, the more you can give away. The harder you work, generally, the more money you can earn. And the more money you earn, the more money you can give towards church planting, towards sending missionaries, towards supporting adoptions, towards nonprofits and other charities. Our church budget actually reflects these hopes and these realities of our own interest-free ABBA fund for adoptions of significant monthly investments in local and international church planting, of supporting local ministries and nonprofits, all pushing back against the darkness of human sin that is grasping for and taking from the kingdom of God. Instead of stewarding the light of the gospel, we want to be pushing back on all of that, and we cannot give things away unless we are first earning. Now briefly, I'm about to kick a real big hornet's nest here, but because you were already thinking about this, or because I mentioned loans that you never intend to pay back, uh, many of you, because you've asked me, uh, have been struggling through how to think through the news of this new loan forgiveness. Is that stealing? Here's my very best but brief advice to you that has nothing to do with my opinion of whether or not this is justifiable or wise policy. Submit to your governing authorities. You are not elected to make these kinds of policy decisions. So just as we pay taxes for things that we actually don't have a say then on how the government chooses to spend and allocate those funds toward, we should also feel the freedom to receive taxed money from others that we don't have a say in as well. 
Now, again, I know that is really, that's a, that's a big hornet's nest, right? But I think this conversation should then stay in the, the submission to government category and not, is this wise or just financial policy? Come and talk to me if you want more of that. But back to what Paul says about not stealing, but being generous, that you might have more to give away to those in need. Jerry Bridges very helpfully says that there are three basic attitudes towards our possession, or towards our possessions. Three basic attitudes. One, the first says, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. This is the attitude of the thief. What's yours is mine. The second says, and this is probably the default mode of the human heart, is that what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. So what's yours is mine, I'll take it. What's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. But the third attitude that is transformed by the extraordinary generosity of the gospel says, what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. That's a gospel-motivated, transformed understanding of possessions. And so put in the context of Ephesians, in these themes of the growing unity of the church, that when a need in our body becomes evident, we must care for each other. We must. Not out, of, not out of compulsion or out of guilt, but out of a generous heart that has received the generous grace of God in Christ. Not in hoarding, but in response to the generous outpouring of the Spirit that has united us in one body. Put off, put on. Put off, put on. Put off the old self. Those default modes of the heart, or certainly those modes of the heart that are against God in all things. Put on the new. Put on the new self. As Paul says, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk in the way of the Gentiles. So as we thought about last week or two weeks ago, be who you are. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling be who you are. Those who have been raised to life in Christ, those who have been united to one another in Christ. But as we continue with the next many sermons of imperatives, of commands, I'm just going to leave you with this incredible quote from Charles Spurgeon, who after preaching that it is the enemy's goal to get you to turn your focus in on yourself instead of on Christ, Spurgeon says this, remember, therefore, that it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. Do you believe this? It is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is not your ability to put off and to put on, to perform and to obey that saves you, but it is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand, which you are grasping Christ, Christ with, Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. It is Christ that empowers, transforms, and enables us to actually be who we are, to put off the old man and to put on the new, to put off the old self and to put on Christ. He is joy. He is contentment. 
He is godliness and he is glory and he is worth it. So little by little, day by day, month by month, year by year, and decade by decade, let's together in unity with him and with one another put off the old man and put on Christ. Let's pray that he might help us in that way. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of light, that you tell the truth always, that we can trust you always. We do not have to doubt. There is no shadow of turning with you. You are always true, stable, right, and righteous. Help us to trust you in these things. Help us to think deeply about these questions. What kind of God are you that you would give us these kinds of commands? What kind of people are we that we need them? And then, oh God, how can you help us? Lord Jesus, help us to trust you more. Holy Spirit, empower us more to walk in your ways as people united to one another, as we are united to our head, the Lord Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.